This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zen Rong Yap, and my guest today is Aitam Yamura. He's the president of the Oxford University Blockchain Society and is part of HomeDAO. We've had many discussions on AI, space, and entrepreneurship. He's always very interesting at events, ready to ask questions, talk about his big thing, and bring in the energy. With that, welcome to the podcast, Aito. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, then, for letting me on. So I can see now you've got this Hanoi Vietnam water bottle. You were there at a hackathon, was it? Yeah, during term, last term. You know, I'm enrolled into my degree, into my fourth year of master's, but I spend, yeah, only like half of the time in Occident and half of the time in hackathons and whatever. It was a great time. Best country I've ever seen. Like, man, I've seen the energy there in Vietnam, and I was like, realized for the first time, like, holy shit, people in the West are so depressed. Jesus Christ. Yeah, like, you know, I think what I saw there was just a lot of young people being extremely energetic. And I think, you know, by all indicators, Vietnam is about to sort of enter this like period of hyper growth. And I I, I sort of imagine this is what happened to China about 20 years ago, where, you know, you had just everything getting better. And so collectively as a society, just there is so much energy. There is no bullshit. It's all meritocratic. And it really is like, you know, do you put yourself out there and like play the risk reward game? And yeah, those who did it better would get rewarded. And I I think it's phenomenal what stage Vietnam is at. And you can really feel it in the energy. Everyone's happy. Everyone's living a simple way of life, but they're all optimistic. And that's, that's, I think, what's incredible about Vietnam. How, How long were you there for? I think two weeks. So that was like during week six and seven of Oxford, I think. Oh, right, right. This is last term, right? <laughs> this is last term, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere else you're planning to go? Yeah, so I had to turn down going to Denver, but we're going to ETH Tokyo to basically participate in the hackathon. And it's also where I'm from. I was born in Tokyo, was born there, and then like left for the UK when I was seven. So that's going to be some exciting shit. Excellent. So you're the president of the Blockchain Society here. What do they do and what do you do in the society? Yeah, so the Oxford Blockchain Society is, you know, we have one line that kind of encapsulates what we want to do, which is to educate, cultivate and accelerate. You know, the point of education is to say, okay, here's what blockchain is without many of the fluff or bullshit about the investments or whatever, and then, you know, why it's useful, why it should be considered, and then cultivate is making people competent at it. So, you know, thinking about how do you write solidity code? How do you reason about systems? How do you reason about decentralization and security? And then accelerate is, you know, we want people in the Oxford Blockchain Society to be active with their lives and take a lot of the opportunity that is inside of the Web3 space build companies, and then we want to help them connect to funding or VCs or just any kind of money to basically get them started in their entrepreneurial journey. That's awesome. But a lot of people in Oxford are not convinced by blockchain and Web3. So what would you tell them? Look, I mean, I'm not entirely married to blockchain either. I think what is useful to know about blockchain is like, you know, it's likely to take shape, people are taking it seriously. And it's like, 
you know, you should at least be open to hearing about it and actually figuring out like what it is because the thing is because it's a financial instrument for a lot of cases that there's been a perversion of the real image of blockchains i think you know one way to think about it is that it's just a way of facilitating money laundering another way to think about it is to help people in you know, less developed countries with corrupt governments that can inflate your currency to hell. And, you know, what we're doing in the developed world is we're just sort of gambling with it as if it's like the secondary stock market. For VCs, it's kind of like, you know, it's a way to get the fastest exit liquidity possible, right? Because like, you know, if a VC invests in a company, it's like they have two ways in which their investments sort of return value. One is through an IPO, which is an arduous process with a ton of regulation, ton of barriers. You need investment banks, whatever. And, you know, that's why SPACs existed for a while to basically kind of maneuver around that. Or acquisitions, which is kind of always uncertain. And, you know, it's really hard to tell if anyone would want to acquire that company. And so ICOs, which is which stands for initial coin offering, where sort of cryptocurrency tokens are sold to the general public. You can think of it as just basically a way to escape regulation and sort of open up a third path of exit for venture capital and you know just general investors as well. And this is the reason why crypto has both taken on a reputation of being a scam because you know there's a lot of people who are just making rock balls, but has also been the most attractive investment targets for a lot of VCs. So it's it's this really weird line of like, you know, it's kind of a Ponzi. And this is why VCs are interested in it, because it's the path of fastest liquidity. And like, you know, if you just think about capitalism, it's like all you like one of the natures I think of capitalism is like it invests or at least the, the incentive structure allocates capital to the places with the fastest liquidity exit, right? And you can see this in like, you know, a lot of the different technologies that we see today. Like, you know, we live in a world where software is unbelievably developed, but a lot of the other sciences are not necessarily as developed as information technology. And that's because the marginal cost of replication and the speed of replication of software is like the fastest and you know it's and so by that token you have the fastest return on investment above everything else like if you really start questioning okay like why is the society we live in today like shaped the way it is and then you think about you know we have all these technologies and you think about sort of what would have been their return on investment time horizon, you, it, it really starts to change like the way you think. And you, you actually think of like technological development in almost like a domino order of like, which ones have the fast liquid, uh, sorry, liquidity exit. And this is sort of the reason why I think crypto, well, I have many reasons, but I think this is one of the reasons why I think crypto will gain prominence, not because it's useful, not because it's like, you know, fundamentally improving on unit economics, but because it shortens the time horizon for investments. 
And I think this is actually one of the most compelling reasons why I think blockchains and cryptocurrencies will see prominent usage. The counter argument to that is basically the SEC regulation, as well as like, you know, other government entities like the OFAC, for example. You know, I think what we've seen with the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX saga is he coupled politics into crypto. Crypto is now a political issue and there will be movements to regulate the shit out of it in the same way that SPACs have been regulated since the 2020 to 2021 boom was regulated. I think the same will happen to crypto. And so we're, we're sort of in this very uncertain waters of like, we don't really know how all of this will play out. Yeah, I'd say that's my main piece on blockchains. So are we all in it to make investments and make money? Why are we doing it? Yeah, I think, so one of the, I think the compelling things in blockchains, I think this is personally to me, what's the holy grail is interoperability. And this was actually the original vision of web one, you can say, or like the original internet. You know, a lot of, so Tim Berners-Lee was like one of the main guys who really invented the internet protocol it was really originally designed to be decentralized it was supposed to be that like you know you can interoperate your data but you know as you've seen we've sort of evolved into this world where everyone like no one goes to the internet sites we just go on social media or internet company apps we're sort of all centralized in like instagram tiktok snapchat you know all of these places instead of visiting like self-owned websites and you know you also can't move your data on those sites to other platforms now this is where interoperability comes in and this is like i think one of the most compelling use cases of blockchains where it's like okay let's say i have my social data from like of like who i follow who i'm friends with on instagram and then i can imagine that you can port that over to let's say your shopping site and specifically like the review section, for example. And now you can have your Amazon reviews, let's say, well, not necessarily Amazon, but just like an e-commerce site reviews tailored as a function of your social graph, right? So what's possible is like, oh, your friends liked this. So we will bump the, these reviews because we think they're more relevant to you based on your social graph. This doesn't happen right now because that user data that Meta has, for example, or Snap Inc has, or TikTok, uh, sorry, ByteDance has, they are economic moats that allow them to operate without the competitors like coming in. But I think the holy grail of like interoperability is like, you know, Let's say I, I follow you on Instagram, then I also follow you on Twitter, like automatically without like me doing that. And all of the identities just get bundled into this one thing. And you can you control the data of like who gets to access what. And, you know, you can already kind of see this with like the auth implementation. So like, you know, when you have like sign in with Google, sign in with Apple, you know, that's like a starting case of it but when you're doing that you're trusting Google or Apple right to manage your data 
I think the promise of blockchains, and I think the most compelling like path of blockchains, is when those digital self-sovereign identities become the basis for everything you do on the internet. And I do think the probability of us making a transition to that kind of world is at least higher than most people expect. I think all you need is one killer app to sort of cause a, you know, a social phenomena where like everyone gathers to that app. And then because all of your data is public on the blockchain, you know, people will sort of start building around your identity based on that one killer app and then building applications around it. And you'd be able to transfer that data across all, di all different kinds of applications. Of course, there's privacy concerns, but that's where a lot of the latest zero-knowledge proof innovations are really there to try and solve that privacy problem. So maintaining the public properties of the blockchain whilst maintaining like data control and privacy using zero-knowledge proofs. So you think that we're a lot closer to having that world than we think, right? So is that what all these companies like Lens are trying to do as well? Yeah, Lens is one of them. I mean, they, they really think social media is like a area that we can really improve. Lens protocol for, for context is like this social graph where it's kind of like Twitter, but basically, you know, I can follow someone on the Lens protocol on, let's say, like an Instagram clone built on top of the Lens protocol. But then like someone can build a different front end, which is like maybe, I don't know, Twitter for Lens Protocol, and then like that social data, sorry, like following follower data is like transferred over to that, and then you can like interoperate this identity for any kind of use case. And yeah, that's the direction that they're trying to go for. I'm not necessarily sure that, I'm not, I don't know about the timeline. I think my guess is that it's going to take about five more years before these things should be taken seriously. But I do think there is enough of that where it's like, it's worth betting on. So this might be a stupid question, but can't Meta just acquire the protocol or something like that? What, what prevents a company from control, taking over control? Yeah, I mean, the, the simple answer is like, they can. They can just acquire all of the like tokens, all the governance tokens, which is essentially equity, right? Whenever someone says crypto tokens, you should really think it just means equity. Bar like, you know, stuff like Ethereum or Bitcoin or like whatever, like the, the fundamental currencies, they're less, they're less of an equity and more of like, a, you know, just random numbers on a public ledger. But most tokens are just equity within a smart contract application, which is not really owned by anybody. And yeah, Meta can absolutely acquire these. The only difference is the nature of blockchains is such that all the code is open source. And if the community doesn't really like the like governance, they can just completely copy all of the code right? Because it's all open source. Right. And then just like make a fork of it and then make the meta one completely like obsolete and just like worthless and just like make a new one 
restart that one up, you know, get it to be owned by the the public. It's it's I think consistent with like a lot of what we see. I was watching a A16Z podcast recently about how you know the speed at which apps gain prominence on the App Store is like increasing, but it's also becoming way more competitive to try and actually stay on the top ten app lists on the App Stores. And so I I, I think you see that on a macro where it's like you you just really see faster cycle times of like apps that emerge and like the life and death cycles of it. And I think the same will be said about these social networks. So I understand that if you fork the protocol, you can you move everything there to a different one and make meta obsolete. If a bunch of people are already on one protocol, having to move over would be enough of resistance to, if meta acquires the protocol, there's a bunch of people on it already. Isn't that a moat in itself? Having to move over? Well, the difference is like, you know, the smart contracts that operate it is like open source and like that can be moved and like all the front end stuff can really be just the same. And so the only difference is like which which applications you like sign your like Web3 address with. But I, I, I want to point something out before we sort of go into this direction, which is like, I, I think we're, we're still in the very early days with Web3 socials that it's it's really hard to say if what is going to be the winner or like what's going to be the staple. I think I tend to think about it as like, a, there's going to be a bunch of different islands that are all trying a bunch of different things. And the strength of Web3 is that you can combine all of these like seemingly disjoint protocols or islands or data formats and then like you can just like bundle them together later on if someone wants to. I'm also not actually 100% convinced that while I think the interoperability of Web3 identities is really nice and really idealistic, I also don't think that's the most likely use case or maybe the, the, the at least to me the probabilities of that is much lower than the use of cryptocurrencies in geopolitics. To me, that's the more compelling argument for why cryptocurrencies and blockchains will gain prominence. Could you elaborate a bit on the geopolitics of it all? Yeah, absolutely. I think 2022 has really changed some of the fundamental assumptions that we've had about the world. I'm mainly talking about the Russia-Ukraine war, but also the hyperinflation and, you know, the economic disasters that's sort of happening around the world. I think the thing to particularly notice is like the SWIFT sanctions. SWIFT is basically the global payment system and the sanctions that were put on Russia. And that basically prevented them from being able to transact like digitally using the conventional like transaction system. And I think what we're seeing in the macro, again, I'm not a macro economist nor like, you know, political science scientist, so I could be completely wrong on this, but at least what I see is a general trend towards decoupling of critical infrastructure like military supply chains, chip manufacturing, energy 
and financial infrastructure. I think these things you're going to see a de-globalization on and you already begin to see some of this with how, for example, I don't know if it's Putin himself, but the, the Russian government is trading oil futures with coin now to basically circumvent quite a lot of the financial sanctions. You can also see, you know, for example, China and Russia accumulating large amounts of gold, and that's with public information, right? So I think like the, there's a strong case to be made that the, they're actually stockpiling a lot more gold than we actually think, since you know gold tends to gain value, especially in warring times or at least high geopolitical tension times, since you know the value of the currency becomes a lot more uncertain. And I think the the, the, the act of like Putin buying oil futures with Bitcoin is only like a, it's, it's only a canary in the coal mine. I think the thing that's really compelling about blockchains is that it's not owned by anybody. It's a true neutral zone. And this, I think, is going to be sort of acting as the bridge between the three great powers of the world, you know, Russia, US and China. And I think blockchains are likely to play a part in allowing certain transactions, which wouldn't have been possible without some kind of trusted, powerful third party. And I think this is the part that I'm the most bullish on. I can't tell you like exactly how this will play out. Did you go see the Ukraine DAO event? Yeah, well, I actually wasn't there at the event, but I, I was the one who intro Lona to the Oxford Blockchain Society. And yeah, I mean, you can see use cases there as well with like Ukraine. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact amount, but, you know, I think when the Ukraine war started, there was a significant amount of money donated to Ukraine because, well, if the financial infrastructure was destroyed, during the Russian invasion, then they would not have been able to like process the foreign aid that's coming from other countries. And so, yeah, it's absolutely the case that like cryptocurrencies basically provide like world-class, maybe not world-class, not yet anyway, but good financial infrastructure and services which wouldn't have been available like out of the box. It's kind of a plug and play financial infrastructure. And that's why it's so appealing to, you know, countries with corrupt governments. I think I saw a data recently, which was like, I think over 50% of adults in Nigeria, Vietnam, Turkey, and a few other countries, which I don't remember, over 50% of the adults use cryptocurrencies. Wow. Which tells you, like, A, just how corrupt those countries are, but also like, B, yeah, like you, you get to, you get access to all of these financial services, which are usually like gatekept by banks or whatever, because of your credit or whatever, you know, at like whether it be lending or exchanging. And, you know, all of the data is public on the blockchain. It's all democratized. I think this is really the, bread and butter of blockchains right now. And I think this is the more like likely adoption that it will gain. It's kind of like a, I think blockchains act as a vigilante to the 
government at hand because I think when the government is competently run, there's really not that much of a point to blockchains. I mean, if you take the UK, for example, I think we've been fortunate to have a like competent enough financial infrastructure to where like we don't think about using cryptocurrencies. But in places like, you know, Vietnam, for example, that I was at, like there is definitely a large product market fit for the cryptocurrencies and the local like government that they're living under. And so it really solves this like finance, like problem, like if you ask, you know, what problem a cryptocurrency is solving, the answer to it could be corruption of the government, for example. So we've been talking about Web3 and the, and the bits of Web3. Let's talk about the combination of bits and atoms, shall we? So what do you think is going on with the chip supply chain with respect to Web3? Yeah, I mean, I want to say one thing about chips before we, we sort of go into Web3, which is like, you know, I mentioned that there are like energy chips, military supply chains, and financial infrastructure is sort of decoupling. I think one of the, the most significant things that happened recently was the chips bill that was passed. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was like crazy two-digit, maybe three-digit billions passed to basically incentivize building chip manufacturing in the US away from Taiwan and stop its reliance on TSMC. Just to kind of give you a perspective, like something like over 50% of all the chips that is manufactured in the world is the fabs for those chips are manufactured in Taiwan and over 98% of the most advanced chips in production are, again, produced in Taiwan. And this is sort of the real, like, you know, political, let's say, sorry, geopolitical, like, stopper that's preventing China from invading Taiwan because it's like they are the central core to, like, what's keeping our world, both the US and China, of us being able to really enjoy and reap the benefits of this, like, electronic digital information technology. Now, what the chip bill is really, you know, raising the flag for is the decoupling of, like, it's sort of acknowledging that chips are absolutely critical to American geopolitics and, like, global dominance, and it's saying we need to have those things in our own country and build TSMC or the equivalent within the US. And China is also doing that where they're trying to basically really reduce their reliance on TSMC as well as the US because the currently the chip supply chain, you know, the chip supply chain is quite complicated, but basically a lot of the core manufacturing happens in TSMC, at least for the fabs, which, you know, is a really difficult job. It, like everyone who works at TSMC, almost everyone has a PhD. And then all of the, the you know, there's a monopoly on the infrastructure, or oh, sorry, the people who m make the tools and manufacturing equipment for manufacturing chip fabs. There's a company called ASML in the Netherlands they basically have a monopoly on chip manufacturing equipment. And then, you know, the chip fabs are made in Taiwan and TSMC, but then they're assembled in China and the US. And then, you know, that's where the, the trade happens in markets. And yeah, I think, you know, what you're seeing is like, there's been obviously 2022 has been an incredible year for 
AI innovation. What I think a lot of people don't appreciate about a lot of the like AI innovations that we've seen over the last year is that really they're just a logical continuation of things, well, of the paper, Attention is All You Need, which sort of introduced Transformers in 2017. And really in the AI scene, there's not been a too much of a fundamental innovation other than hardware design and memory optimization and chip optimization. I think this is the, the truth that sort of maybe not many people understand, which is like the main, the main driver of all AI progress and information processing progress has all been in hardware with like- From NVIDIA. Right? Exactly. Well, yeah, NVIDIA, you know, Google's trying to get it on it. Tesla's obviously designed their own chips. So has Apple with the M1, M2 chips. And yeah, a lot of the fundamental innovations has been that. And I think even though Moore's law in the traditional sense, as defined by the founders of Intel, has stopped, a lot of the Moore's law has moved on to other types of high performance computation or HPC, whether it be into GPUs by NVIDIA, you know, and AMD, TPUs by Google, Apple M1 chips, and I don't know too much about the Tesla chips, but I know they're like optimized for machine learning inference on the fly, since yeah, you need fast inference time for like machine learning models. And there's obviously a rise of ASICs, which is application specific integrated chips, for Bitcoin mining, for example, similar things happened with Ethereum. And yeah, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a wealth of opportunities in high performance computation. And, you know, there are some people, and again, I don't, I haven't made my, you know, final decisions with this, but I think what you'll see with the CHIPS Act is just continued innovation in chip manufacturing as we really decouple and the world regime changes. And yeah, I think it's a really beautiful time to be in high performance computing or really understanding hardware, because I think that's where you'll see majority of innovations from including areas like artificial intelligence and blockchains. This has been really interesting because I've been studying nanotechnology for the last couple of weeks and in my course and I actually visited the ASML plant in Eindhoven in the Netherlands didn't fully grasp the significance of it at the time but it's these machines that are six sigma and the the hardest thing to do in the world basically and these guys are able to do the most advanced manufacturing in human history to make these chips and Nvidia is a fabulous company and they make their chips through TSMC, right? But I've never actually heard anyone say that the innovation in AI will actually be coming from hardware. Most people say it's software, right? So what made you realize this? Was it through reading papers, talking to a professor? Do you think that the computer science degrees at universities are need to be re redesigned to teach more hardware? Well, look, I think, you know, universities have become a very weird object. You know, there's a 
this criteria I always like to sort of refer to, which is like Peter Thiel's full criterion for education, or like what the different classifications, I guess. They're not supposed to be a, they're not supposed to be mutually exclusive, but you can think of education as an investment, right? To basically help you make more money and be more employable. You can think of it as consumption, which is sort of, you know, a degree as a four-year party. You can think of it as an insurance to sort of help you ha have some level of like stability and say like, you know, it's going to be fine. I'm going to be employed and I'm going to like have opportunities. And then lastly, competition, which is sort of this virtue signaling way, you know, for example, you can take Oxford and like Oxford is like, you know, the fact that you're enrolled into Oxford is kind of like a virtue signal to say, hey, you know, I stand on top of the all the, all the applicants that has really like tried to apply to Oxford. And it's actually not very clear what university is for, you know, like it's not obvious if it's consumption. I mean, some people treat university as such, you know, it's not obvious if it's an investment, like we obviously pay a lot of money, but some people are more increasingly, especially in the US, realizing that it might not be worth it. It's sort of like an insurance for the same reasons. And yeah, it's also not clear if it's like, it's obviously very competitive. And I think on the point of like where I learned a lot of my AI stuff from, you know, I've, I've pretty much not learned much from the Oxford machine learning courses. I'd say majority of my AI knowledge has really just come from exploring on my own and just like reading papers, listening to people who are leading the field, experimenting a bunch of stuff myself, talking to really small people. I think what's quite significant about university is that it's sort of this it's sort of this large, it's sort of this large, like, lie, maybe, where it's like, you know, every good university, take Oxford as an example, they, they promise you that it's this really amazing place. But when you actually go in, you realize the, the education is kind of garbage because, well, you know, the people, the, the fact of the matter is, by inertia, people will apply to Oxford because it's Oxford. And what you end up with is you have, you, you collect a bunch of smart people who were, you know, tricked by the, the brand of it and, and they all gather and the, the value, I think the real, the, the most important value that's created by universities is that these really smart people meet and, you know, it's a great convergence point. I think the true value is in who you meet at these universities, but the the actual education itself is lacking because well the university doesn't really have an incentive to improve the education at least they don't have an incentive to go above and beyond so what do you think should be changed about universities i think you know as much shit as i give to universities i also think on the on the counter side that universities are likely to exist for a long period of time and I think that's because like, you know, what's the, the upside of universities being this very unclear ephemeral thing is that it's, it's a perfect place if you don't really know what you want to do, if you don't really have a direction. And so it's sort of this, because it's the everything burger, it's great for people who is kind of a, like, who, don't, who, don't, who, don't, who doesn't really know like what direction to take. So I think it's like a great diversification against ignorance. And I think this is the reason why we'll, we'll kind of universities will remain. And I think what that says about our society is like, you know, 
we have a lot of people who just don't really have a direction. And then the more important question to ask is like, you know, why is that? And has that always been the case? Or is it something unique about the time we live in? I'm more inclined to say that it's the time we live in. And I mean, you know, talking to older people who have lived through older ages, it feels like our, you know, generation is a lot more clueless than the, the previous generations have been. And maybe that's because of, you know, wealth distribution and all of these other things. I, I don't have a very clear answer to that. I think, you know, do I think universities should be improved? I, I don't know for sure. As I said, I think it does solve the problem of people not knowing what to do. That said, I think we should be more intellectually honest about what universities are, which is like, it's not this, it's not this package that can like really get you opportunities, but it really should be thought of as, as, a, as a playground for you to be able to sort of explore different options and try a bunch of stuff out if you don't have direction. I think we should, as a society, like allow options for people who know what they want to do and don't need a degree to do the things that they want to do. And, and like, you know, you can see that in a bunch of different things, whether it be like visa, it's really hard to get a visa unless you have a degree. I think we should allow other forms of education, like apprenticeships as like a, not as a lesser version of a degree, but just like, you know, a higher conviction of what the person wants to do. Yeah, I think we should really start to think about alternatives to universities. So Aito, you're a very good programmer, and but I'm guessing that you didn't learn most of it from university. Right? <laughs> so well, what was your path to learning a new language or skill each time? I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I learned programming in a very weird way. I, I learned it from Minecraft. I just played a fuck ton of no Minecraft. No way. <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. Minecraft command blocks and redstone, like that was that was how I kind of learned programming. It was really obscure, it was a really bad language as well. I think the the best thing I always like think about with programming, and I don't I don't think I'm that good. I think I've just done it for a while. So like I know how to do it, but I, I know a bunch more competent people who can like if they've just touched the programming language, then they'd be like 10 times better than I would be. I, I think I'm just decent from the process of like touching the programming languages and sort of seeing like the, the similarities and differences between them and ha having like a really wide view. I'd say, yeah, I mean, the, the, the number one way to get good at programming is just write something, do something, like do it for a particular purpose. Don't just like learn about variables because I don't know, like Code Academy tells you to, but like actually try and set an objective that's practical and hopefully gives you like a dopamine rush if you can complete it. And then yeah, work towards that because I think humans tend to learn better from example. I think bar a few people, like we're really bad at learning abstractly and it's more suited within our nature to just learn from examples and so i think doing just real projects and as many different wide projects as possible can help you really get a wide view of like programming as a whole and then you can kind of like connect the dots between different things you learn and they sort of all reinforce each other and your skills in programming yeah the way i got a lot better at it was that I had a mentor I had a teacher at school who would sit down with me and 
for like an hour and debug my code with me. <laughs> I think that made a huge difference because he taught me the ways of testing the code, right? Being rigorous in doing each step first so that you can put it all together and make it modular as well. You said earlier that, that a lot of people at the moment are a bit lost right? and not sure what to do, what to study. Do you think it's because we live in a world of increasing complexity? I think the way I would sort of answer that question is like, what is the truth anymore? And I think the bigger problem that we actually see is information and like misinformation. I mean, you know, you've probably seen a lot of stuff about it on Twitter or a, a lot of other things. I think we've we as a society have really started to struggle trying to figure out what the ground truth is because in the past we used to have these consistent well-aligned well-unified sense of like you know what we should be doing whether that be patriotism or you know nationalism i think and that was all a very healthy dynamic and so you know you can kind of you can kind of ride on these and you know, know that, have confidence that that was the right direction. I think what we have now in this like sort of personalized hyperstimulus age is like, you know, you have these algorithms which are sort of there to boost attention. We live in, really live in an attention economy. And the perverse incentives of that have really confused people and really like bred mistrust in the world and so you can it's, it's much more difficult for people to figure out what's true anymore like you know should you believe in the right the left the democrats the republicans the climate like the climate flat earthers you know i think one of the one of the key indicators to me which sort of shows like a distrust towards authority to me is actually flat earthers i saw a really funny but very telling statistic last year where it was like so so there's actually a flat earth conference that happens every year and you know at some point like i i always wondered you know why do people believe in like the flat earth theory when probabilistically i think it's very very unlikely that we live on a flat earth and what i realized was like actually this isn't even about science or like scientific reasoning this is more about the distrust towards the government i think people believe in flat earth not because they think that is the truth though i'm sure they do believe that i think the larger motivation for believing in flat earth is actually the distrust towards authority and government and that got reflected i think in 2021 where they had the highest number of attend attendees for the global flat earth conference and so and, and you know you can see it in various different indicators whether that be political polarization or just you know like the shit show that's happening in twitter i think we've really lost our compass as a society for like what's true and what's not true and just to add on to that there's now ai on the scene where it's like you have these ai which are able to you know, create human-like sentences within like seconds on a much, much faster rate than humans. And so I think 
my guess would be that if it hasn't happened already, you're going to see the internet spammed with content, which are generated, there'll be more content generated by AI than humans, if it hasn't happened already, which I think is, it's actually more likely that we, we're already in that state. And so you, you sort of, we, we sort of live in this world now where like, you know, whoever has the agenda and the means, that being AI and some kind of bypassing systems to bypass like the spam and bot filter, you know, I think we live in a world where basically there's too much information and not enough people who can pass what is true or false. And my answer to, you know, a lot of these problems is always education and critical thinking and actually being able to think by yourself and really just like understanding incentive structures. I think that's another key important thing where you sort of say, what is the incentive of the platform or the publisher? And how does that distort the truth of what I've delivered? And how do I adjust for that noise that's added by the incentive structures? Because some kind of ground truth exists. It's just that during the communication of that ground truth, there is either noise added to the information or some kind of distortion. And so I think the most important skill in the world moving forward will be how to sort of get rid of that distortion as much as possible. And I think that will be what can restore direction and meaning to sort of everyone's lives. But I think that's a non-trivial problem that's very difficult to do in a systematic way, at least in the world that we live in. You said earlier that the internet at some point will have more content made by AI than it will have by humans. That's actually really easy to do because you can just have AI be running and creating content much more quickly. Yeah, that's why I think it's actually a fairly high probability that's, that, that what I said is already true. Yeah. So can you apply some sort of GAN to every single type of content that AI can make? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, GANs and like having discriminators and generators where like the discriminator can kind of tell like if it was generated by an AI or whatever, they do exist they're sort of not as effective as we'd like and they're horrible to train right? and they're horrible to train and also like a lot of the modern for example like take stable diffusion or you know dali they're not really made with gan like techniques anymore and so i think where that leaves us with is sort of these measures that for example open ai researchers are working on which is sort of ai watermarking where they can sort of predict the probability that a given text for example was generated by an ai so it can like these things can really guess like well you know if say a certain text was generated by an ai or like a like chat gpt or human and it can like guess it through doing a statistical test by sort of partitioning a bunch of different words and then running a statistical test and like 
what's the probability that this was generated by Dali, sorry, ChatGPT or some kind of other language model. But the problem with these models is like they're very fragile. You can mix the text that was generated by the AI. There are like these mixes which exist and then you can get past that. My intuition is that you basically can't do detection. I think, you know, you can come up with like superficial defenses against AI detection, but really you can't do like very sophisticated detection. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of fucked when it comes to like, you know, verifying the truth of something. And at least for me, what, what I do is sort of, I, I, I take critical thinking and just more like analog interactions more seriously. I tend to like, you know, I think the, the things we've done before, which is sort of believing in the wisdom of the crowd is now quite dangerous because the crowd can be just a crowd of AI controlled by someone with an agenda. And so I think we, for, for sense making about the real world, I think increasingly as we move forward, I think it's going to be more important that we trust things that we see not online, not on the internet, which is sort of like a weird regression. And maybe it's important to also like make a distinction between trying to get information for like, you, whenever you want to look up information on the internet, you should think, you know, is there a agenda for someone to misinform for this? Yes, no, and then like sort of measure the probability of like the thing you see being true or false. So like, you know, it's unlikely that someone's gonna try and misinform you about E equals MC squared. It's more likely to, that someone's gonna try and like misinform you about, I don't know, let's say what happened with the Twitter files, for example. And, and so building these distinctions, I think are gonna be a very important skill as we enter an age where yeah, most of the content is just generated by AI. So with people being misled, I once got misled into going down the YouTube rabbit hole of becoming <laughs> anti-vaxxer. We've all been there, man. I did manage to get out within an hour, I think. And it took seeing one YouTube video that from Dr. Mike that falsified all the wrong premises from the anti-vaxxer videos. So with, anytime you're trying to convince someone, there's a premise, an argument, and a conclusion. And what I realized was that with a lot of these anti-vaxxer videos, the argument and the conclusion are actually quite tight and reasonable. However, they're based on completely wrong premises. And if you were to accept the premise, you often get led to a conclusion that seems reasonable from that. So that's why it's always important to think critically and figure out where the premise is. Right. And as you said, does the information source have a reason to mislead us or to mislead you? And often it starts with the premise. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's definitely a case with a lot of things that are sort of considered misinformation. I mean, I think one of the things that I just no longer know anymore is climate. I think, you know, I think what's happened with like the, the whole climate thing is like, we have so much information and like a lot of these information can be basically cherry-picked to present one side of the argument and the other side of the argument like quite convincingly. I think we've, we've really entered an era of like 
you know, even if the premise is correct, you can still lie by saying the truth. Like, this is the really weird world that we've entered. Like, we have so much information, like, you can use any information to, like, make a lie, you know? You can, you can just cherry-pick the information, for example, about, oh, you can say this greenhouse gas is more effect, more potent than carbon dioxide, and this releases a bunch of this, so we shouldn't do it. But then, you know, when you actually look at the arguments, while well, actually carbon dioxide, you know, has a longer persistence than this greenhouse gas. By the way, I'm not trying to conclude, like, you know, climate change exists, doesn't exist. I mean, I, I believe that it exists and, you know, it is happening. But my point is more that you can really lie with the truth. And so the only counter you have towards this is just understanding every layer of this information supply chain from who trans who and where did the information come from how was the information collected how was it transmitted how was it modeled where was the feature selection right for like what is relevant and yeah just intake a lot of these and then be really flexible i think one of the things i strongly believe in is like i have very strong opinions but they're very weakly held and I, I always am like ready to switch sides whenever there's like a information that can like sort of move the needle and try and weigh them on like their importance. I think, yeah, like smart sounding arguments is only one part of the information supply chain with, you know, what you said, for example, with the anti-vaxxers, like the, the argument and the conclusion is like one part of the supply chain, but you need to also think about like the the lower parts of, sorry the more closer to the root of the information and like the information supply chain and the incentives there and yeah this gets really complex and to be honest i don't think there's a good universal solution for it yeah i i feel the same way and it, looking looking more at how it affects people socially there's this rise of like alt, the alt-right that are able to cherry pick all these statistics and come up with a reasonable sounding argument. And a lot of kids fall prey to this, you know. And yeah, the, the, it's, it's a big problem at the moment. And as you said, you have to analyze each and every layer of things. And you still might not get to a conclusion. Yeah. Like, dude, I, have, I actually have no clue. Like, so too many conflicting information. It's difficult to know what exactly to do. Right, with all the information you're given. So do you know of a good source of information that you always go to that analyzes each and every layer? So I think there's a few interesting ways to answer this. Twitter, for example, actually worked on really interesting algorithms to try and solve misinformation, where they like consider the social graph and then apply machine learning to basically build like context vectors for the information source and sort of like think about the probability of a given information being true or false based on the context vectors and the social graph. I don't know how effective they were <laughs> given what you see, but there's a lot of interesting research going into like how to resolve misinformation through like um, considering the cult sources. I think that's also useful to do on like a very individual level without any tech. 
where you sort of say like, okay, for example, if someone who's working in venture capital, right, and, you know, talks about tech companies all the time, then, you know, you should probably take their opinion a lot more seriously since they see stuff on the ground and like, you know, their opinions are based on what they see. And like, when you, when you ingest information, you should always think like, what is their proficiency? What is their experience? And like, what is the probability, what is the certainty bar associated with what they're saying, right? Whereas like, for example, when a, when a, I don't know, a tech founder of like some regular B2B SaaS starts talking about the environment, let's say, you know, maybe you should be a little bit more cautious because you should think like, okay, like he's not actually working on the ground for like looking at like environmental data. And so, you know, you should probably pay less weighting onto that. There was actually a news site that I saw recently, which did this thing where like, you can look at the news source and see who sponsors them. And based on like who sponsors them or sort of if they're right leaning or left leaning, you can kind of tell like, you know, what's the probability that a given information is biased. What I would say though, is like the, the original intent of the media was to sort of act as a vigilante to the government and the current party. I, I think that's probably no longer true anymore as you might've seen with the Twitter files. I think it's always useful to remember that education and the media is ultimately a tool by countries or authorities to lead their country in a particular way. So China is a very specific example where like they have a, you know, iron fist grip on the education as well as the, the media by just like having the great firewall of China. And yeah, it's always useful to remember, like, to think about what is the agenda by the, all the supply chain of actors around you and thinking about like society as a whole and saying, you know, what do people who have power over you want you to do and believe? And always consider information in this kind of context. Noam Chomsky has a phenomenal book that he's written called Manufacturing Consent. And I think that is a phenomenal playbook that can tell you how you can manipulate the media to push a certain agenda. And I think that book is really useful to learn about, you know, how the things you see could be used for a particular agenda by someone else or a group of people. So yeah, I think that's what I'd recommend for sort of getting sources properly, because then like you can sort of think under that framework of manufacturing consent and then think for yourself about is this information likely to be true or false? So let's shift to I to the person, shall we? You have this eclectic sense of fashion. So how do you approach it? Honestly, dude, I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a little honestic here. I just buy clothes from Japan because the, all the clothes in the UK suck ass. End of period. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you're wearing you have a Doge hoodie at the moment. Yeah, I can see. So really own it, man. Yeah. Hey, man, look, you you know you gotta just dress the way you you, you like. It's I think the, the the one useful lesson I've learned from like someone is like, you know, clothes aren't really for you. It's for like the people for you, for other people. And uh, yeah, you should just think like, you know, what kind of image you wanna, you wanna project. And 
you know, I'm a little crazy, so <laughs> I was like, fuck it, let's live with that. Did you get anything from Vietnam when you were there? I, I got one coat, but not gonna lie, drip from Japan, they still rock, man. Every, every non-Japanese drip sucks ass. Right, right. That's my uh, nationalist biased opinion. What are your thoughts on how Japan is progressing? Like, what would be the dream for Japan for you? Yeah, I think Japan is, if I'm completely honest, a very... It's a, it's a sleeping giant that's, you know, on like life support and dying very, very, very slowly. <laughs> yeah, there's an extinction date for Japan, right? Well, I think the extinction date is quite long. I think it's gonna stay for a long period of time. It's just like, you know, it's just gonna be a very slow death. Slow and painful, maybe I'll describe. I mean, I think what I can say there is like, you know, I've gone to Japanese schools, or like interact with the culture, and it's like, I think the main problem is that they just have too much of an incentive to sort of... I'd say they're a society that's very kind to everyone in that they really try and equalize people, right? Like they really try and in like a uniform distribution of like, you know, whether it be like education or wealth or like skills or like roles and that is great for most of the people like it works for a large period of people because like a lot of people in japan don't actually want to leave japan because living in japan is like very superficially convenient you know the food is good the services are nice the streets are clean you know all of these things the main problem is that i think what a lot of stuff about for example the power law talks about or you know the black swan and like the stuff about Pareto distributions is in a lot of things, especially like economies, you, you have this power law where like it's the shining stars, it's the top 0.01% that really drives a lot of economic growth and not trying, like Japan is the society where it's like if you're a little bit edgy, if you're a little bit, you know, abnormal, let's say, you know, you're sort of punished for that. And so you sort of stifle a lot of innovation that could happen from all of these um, weirdos, let's say. And so I think what you see in Japan is like these people just kind of leave to America and, or, you know, just outside of Japan to basically make innovations. And, you know, the venture capital scene there is kind of depressing. There's a bunch of problems there. You know, it's debt to GDP ratio is the highest in the world. And yeah, I think the age the age demographic is collapsing. I think there's a lot of reasons to be bearish Japan. But then again, you know, it's a phenomenal country to go on a tour, like, you know, a trip to. And I do like it for that reason. It does just make me sad. And yeah, I mean, if I can, you know, contribute to maybe reviving Japan later down in my career, that'd be something I would love to do just out of nationalism or just, you know, love of like my own country and culture. But yeah, I would not. I would not go to Japan, at least if you want to think about the long term. But you want to create the great wave, right? That comes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I need to definitely develop myself and grow myself a lot more before I have the capacity to do that. Right. I think, especially since I never actually grew up in Japan, it's there are there are going to be hurdles to enter Japan in a meaningful way, but. Yeah, let's hope that that'll be possible down 20 years down the line. 
Yeah, I'm curious. Masa from SoftBank is he is he well known in Japan on the ground, or is he more well known outside of Japan? <laughs> I I think he's well known in both. You know, I think Masa probably comes across as a little less crazy because you know I think his English isn't the best, so he comes across as like a fucking madman. <laughs> I mean, he is definitely a madman with you know how he like deploys capital, but I think when he speaks in Japanese. You, you sort of it sort of makes more sense like the way he thinks it's very difficult to put it into words though and yeah I mean I, I think the funniest thing about Masa is like he's very much the example of like he could have done his shit in the US but he decided to come back because he made a promise to his mother and yeah he's been rocking it I, SoftBank is definitely one of the most valuable countries in the Japan stock exchange and well, the funniest part maybe is that SoftBank doesn't invest in the Japanese stock market, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe the biggest irony. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely well known for providing a lot of mobile infrastructure, for example, in Japan. So I want to ask, who inspires you the most, Haito? Well, on the topic of like, you know, maybe like Japan, definitely Masa. Masa's like pretty cool. I think a lot of like the future thesis I have is quite aligned with Masa and like you know we were both we both uh, are very forward-looking about deep robotics for example and the intersection with the AI I think in a very general sense I can give you a lot of boring answers but I think a person I really enjoy is Doug Leone from Sequoia Capital great man great fucking man I think what I really love about Doug is his approach to building up Sequoia, especially during the dot-com and the resilience and the pride that he had to really, you know, make keep Sequoia alive. But not only that, but his approach to setting up the Sequoia Global Fund. And the thing that really resonates with me is like, you know, he says, okay, at Sequoia, we don't talk about all the past wins. We don't talk about how we invested in Google, WhatsApp, Apple, whatever. You know, take that shit off the off the wall. We're gonna think about if we were a new venture capital firm, how would we kill Sequoia? And then they execute that over and over and over again. And I think that attitude of like never being arrogant and always thinking how could someone kill me and how could we develop so that we can do the killing before someone else kills us i think is a phenomenal way of you know thinking about like what you're driven to do and yeah i love that about doug i can go on for hours about his principles and the way he lives his life but i think doug is absolutely phenomenal and is really the main person who has made Sequoia into the legendary firm that it is today. More than Michael Moritz, do you think? Well, Michael Moritz is phenomenal too. It's just uh, he retired a bit early, you know, because of his sickness and stuff. Again, I think Moritz is phenomenal. It's just Doug was the guy who was left. So that's kind of it. You organized the Sequoia 
an EF dinner at some point earlier this term through Homedal. So can you tell us more about Homedal? Yeah, so Homedal is this really interesting thing that's happening in Oxford. You know, I've spent like a good three-ish years like looking for a community of like people who are motivated and, you know, want to do something more than just like, you know, being employed in prestigious companies and doing whatever. I've never really found that. A lot of societies or groups I've been in have more or less been like, you know, virtue signaling or maybe just like lack of real experience to be able to do anything, which isn't like a jab. It's just more of like a timing thing. And I think Homedow is this community that I've been really lucky to have been exposed to where it's essentially four entrepreneurs live within a house and, you know, they live together and really think through like, you know, how can we build a company that can really like, you know, define their path and make changes. The focus right now is in crypto. Oh, I should say it, while it's called HomeDAO, it is not a DAO and that's why it's phenomenal. I think tend to believe that DAOs are kind of stupid with some nuances and yeah, it's just a, it's the alternative name for HomeDAO is the Oxford Crypto Village, where it's each house has a different theme and they're populated with people who are building companies. There are some people who are building venture cap, venture backed companies. And yeah, I definitely plan to join them and go for it. And they're turning in more into an incubator of sorts for people with high conviction about what they want to build. So what do you want to build? Yeah, I, so I have some ideas, can't talk too much about it right now, but a lot of it will be focused around the intersection of AI and blockchain. And that's because sort of, at least the way I look at myself is, you know, someone who stands in the intersection of that and dual wields both of them. And there's a lot of things in blockchains that could really use innovations that we've see, seen in the AI world onto a lot more practical applications within blockchains. And yeah, that's about all I'll say for now, but definitely we'll be talking about it more in the future. And where will you be talking about it? Where can people reach out to you and find your work? Yeah, I think the main place that I'll be talking about it would be on my Twitter. My Twitter handle is at so underscore Miyamura, just my name. And yeah, that will be where I'll sort of be talking about some of the progress on what I'm working on. And yeah, I'll be talking a lot about AI, blockchains, probably not as much on blockchain and high performance computing, since I think these two would be the pillars that really make the future. That's awesome, Ito. Today we've talked about blockchain, talked about Web3, the supply chain of semiconductors, TSMC, ASML, high-performance computing, how to do programming, and even touched on the university education systems and misinformation. I think everyone has learned a lot today, and thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Pleasure.